0: Back to another episode of the Sly Hooper podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Hustle. We got a guest today. Yep, that's right. We got a guest and it's a long time coming for this guest. It is a reunion, I guess you could say. I am back with hashtag basketball. I started there in 2016 during the 2015-16 season writing about The 10-win Philadelphia 76ers, which was interesting, I guess, to say the least. But I got my start there. Met some good people through Hashtag Basketball. Um, Joey, the creator of the website. Shout out Joey. Evan Damarell of uh, Forbes Sports. I met him through that. And also Nick Agar Johnson, host of the Hashtag Basketball Deep Dives podcast. Tortured Kings fan, and that's gonna be the subject of the show today. I'm going to be talking with him about the Sacramento Kings, uh, the future of some players on the team, how bad they have been on the defensive end lately, and then you know, we'll get to some good stuff because there are good things going on with the Sacramento Kings, even though there are also things going on with that team that makes you go, okay, Kangs, but. They have a new front office. They dipped into the Daryl Morey tree and hired Monty McNair to head basketball operations. And things are looking up. They had a decent offseason. I think people expected them to tank. And they maybe have surpassed expectations. They're 6-10. But we're going to talk to Nick about that. He has been a guest on my podcast a few times. Not this podcast, but back when i was first starting out podcasting i had a podcast called the second unit which is really just it's a terrible name <laughs> i'm just going to be real it was a terrible name but you know i'm first i'm starting out podcasting you're probably going to come up with a few terrible things right and then when i started my second podcast the open gym podcast he was a guest on that and now that i have my bearing set on this podcast, and I'm going to keep this podcast for the long haul, Nick Agar-Johnson was kind enough to hop on after a few years, really. And uh, he he and I always have good conversations on air, off air, and uh, this episode was no different. So without further ado, here is Hashtag Basketball's Nick Agar-Johnson. It has been a long time coming, but uh, he's been on my two other podcasts that are now in the podcast graveyard and he's joining me here finally on the Sly Hooper podcast a hashtag basketball reunion with Nick Agar Johnson noted Kings fan uh, host of the host of the NBA Deep Dives podcast how are you doing sir how is uh how is the young NBA season treating you so far hope you've been able to survive what has been a crazy year. It's been a a few years since you've been on my, well, my other podcast, so it's good to have you on.
1: It's good to be back, man, and good to talk to you again. Obviously, there isn't much positive to take away as a Kings fan at the start of this particular season, but we do have Tyrese Halliburton, so I'm holding on to that.
0: Yeah, I imagine Tyrese Halliburton is like the equivalent of basketball cocaine for you guys right now, (laughs) considering (laughs) everything that has been – at least going on the last few years, but let's just jump right into it. So expectations going into the season, you guys got a new GM uh, in Monty McNair. He is a disciple of Daryl Morey. Loved the front office shuffling, by the way. Um, I think anytime you can pluck executives that are under the Daryl Morey tree, I think that is a sign that at least ownership, uh, Vivek, led by Vivek Rana at least wants to change the way he has been running things. Finally, thank God. Um, expectations were you guys were probably not going to be good. You expecting to tank, join the Cade Cuttingham sweepstakes, but you guys kind of started off a little a, on a little hot streak. You went three and zero, and then it hasn't been as good since. And you guys are just putrid defensively if I could be frank but your guys are still six and ten it's probably not where you thought you would be at this point in the season and we're a quarter of the way of the season through the season by the way believe it or not the 72 game schedule always messes me up but how would you as somebody who is a super fan of this team and you know I watch I watch games I've covered Kings games I live here in Sacramento and I know and I know A lot about the kings but you have a wealth of knowledge about this franchise and i've been watching a lot of games more than probably anybody any normal fan could stomach uh if i could be polite about it as i can but how would you assess uh what do you have seen from your team so far just a general thought before we dive really dive deep into this you know, it's funny. I thought the Kings were sort
1: of straddling the line between trying to complete trying to compete for a, a spot in the play-in tournament versus the fade for, Cade group. <laughs>
0: fade the for Kate group. Fade for Kate? I haven't so- heard that one. <laughs>
1: That's pretty good. There you go. Uh but at the start of the season, I wasn't really sure, you know, where the team was going to land sort of in that spectrum. I mean, they've been right around the 11th seed pretty consistently for the past 14 years, which is, you know, its own sort of separate set of issues. But it certainly seemed like coming into the season that they could push for one of those 9-10 spots in the play-in tournament. But just looking at the defense this year, it seems pretty clear that they're not going to be in that sort of group. You know, maybe they lucked into that with injuries to other teams but really at this point it's just about trying to develop the younger players on the roster and hopefully end up getting lucky on draft lottery night but they also just took Tyrese Halbert with the 12th pick so who knows maybe Monty McNair's just got some sort of flair for drafting that uh, wasn't exactly there with Vladi Divac at the helm
0: We'll get into Ty Royce Halliburton um the who I think is the presumptive I think he's the rookie of the year favor right now but I wanted to I hope so yeah uh, yeah uh that would that would be a nice like not consolation gift but just I love it when King's fans get nice things because they have just been through a lot and um I wanted to go into the defense a little bit more so on January 6th, they were 23rd in defensive rate in the defensive rating per cleaning the glass. And, um, you know, it seemed like, you know, Buddy Healed started off the season, you know, talking about how um, he heard the noise about how he wasn't playing defense. And then he actually started trying for the first few weeks. Uh, the Kings were trying rotation seemed better. Um, they seemed to kind of know what they were doing more, even though they were 23rd. At least you could see some. I wouldn't say improvement, but at least it was better basketball. It was more watchable basketball. But now, since then, you guys are dead last in defensive rating. And not dead last, but dead last by a wide margin. So the next, or you guys are 30th with a 119.6 defensive rating. And that would put you at dead last. And then 29th is Portland, but... You guys are behind Portland by a solid three full points per 100 possessions. So I'm wondering from your vantage point, what has exactly changed in the Kings defense from the first two weeks of the season, basically to lately, um, they got bodied by the Clippers. They got bodied by the trailblazers. Um, allowing a, allowing ba- almost like 140 points, pretty much. I don't even remember how many points they scored that night uh, in that mini series you guys did, but it seems like I, I know Luke Walton has talked about how he he wants the Kings to stop offensive rebounding now because they're trying to work on defensive principles and getting back more, and that still doesn't seem to be working. So what has been missing for you, or what has been, uh, what have you seen? in the Kings defense where you've seen such a sharp just really bad decline on that end
1: you know what's really sad let me read to you the first sentence that I wrote about the Sacramento Kings for the hashtag basketball NBA power rankings
0: which That's me awesome. and Nick both write for you should check it out
1: there you go plug right in the middle of the podcast Perfect. yeah <laughs> the here it is the Sacramento Kings won three of the their first four games before falling to three and three and look like a vastly more competent defense already this season under the guidance of Rex Kalamian. Whoops
0: Oh that one did not age well <laughs> And that that one aged like milk. That was fast. <laughs> like, that, that one
1: didn't age that one didn't age like milk. That aged like you take milk and you pour like battery acid in it to like try and make it curdle <laughs> faster. Like that was that's what we're talking about.
0: Here. Oh man. So oh, man. so um it's 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 I guess it's just as I still can't put my finger on it like I know they're not I didn't expect them to be a world beater defensively quite frankly I thought they were a fringe play-in team just given I thought um what Monty McNair was doing with the moves in the offseason it was clear the motive was to build around Deere and Fox and to match the time the age timeline of their star player who they just extended over the summer And, um, I'm, I'm still trying to, even with that said, I still didn't expect him to be this awful. Like I, like the Blazers being the one of the worst defenses in the NBA, it was kind of surprising. I didn't expect him to be like, you know, a world beater, but they added defensive wings, which is what the Blazers needed. So I didn't expect him to be in the bottom three teams of defensive rating, um, I expected the Wizards to just be terrible because they were terrible last year. And then you add Westbrook, I'd imagine they were going to give up more points um, and have a really bad defensive rating. And it's just a little – it's surprising to me because it's not like like De'Aaron Fox. He's a quick tweet, twitch athlete, has long arms. Um, Harrison Barnes can – defend one through four by the way Harrison Barnes has been awesome this year um I'm sure we'll talk about that later but he has been fantastic this year Tyrese Halliburton is one of the best off-ball rookie defenders I have seen already like he can process information at a rate that is really impressive uh for a 19 year old 19 20 um I think and um Still, though, it just doesn't seem like they're a cohesive unit, and uh, it's it's just surprising. is It's surprising that they're this bad, I guess, is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I thought they would probably be a bottom 10 defense heading into the year, and then if they were going to be a play-in team, it was going to be that they got into the top half on offense. And I mean, right now, they're 13th in offensive rating. It's just that their defense is not only dead last, but as you pointed out already dead last by such a wide margin that it's almost ridiculous they did have their best defensive game of the season in their last game against the knicks which is also the only time they've held the team under 100 points this season which the knicks
0: who are 28th in offensive rating sorry i had to point that out (laughs) thank you we really needed that (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i have to keep it real on the podcast i'm sorry
1: (laughs) no i mean i i understand and and I appreciate that, but man, <laughs> just, just going right for the kill there um,
0: I mean, I don't expect him to be this bad for I don't expect him to be this bad for this long, but it's definitely it's definitely has been an indictment on Luke and the staff. and I'm just wondering, in your real quickly before we go to the offensive side, I'm just wondering from your perspective what is your assessment of Luke Walton now a year and a quarter into the season? Because quite frankly, I'm still – I'm not impressed. I think last year I was fooled – or before the hire last year, I was one of the many people in basketball media world that was like, oh, Luke Walton's a good hire. Remember that one season where they got the young Lakers to be 15th in defensive rating? It's hard to get young guys to play defense, and then that – the Kings were up and down last year. They had like that good stretch uh, at the end of late January and February and then tailed off again. And then the bubble was just like, okay, like why, like why even play these extra games, <laughs> right? But I'm just wondering from you, what what are your main problems with Luke as a coach so far? Or maybe you think he's been dealt a bad hand i don't know what your thoughts are but nope Nope. okay all right go ahead go off uh yeah
1: three words fire luke walton um if it weren't just for the fact that he can't wear a mask properly or set a rotation that makes any sense i mean (laughs) buddy healed like actively spoke out against dave yeager repeatedly when yeager was coach and recent rumblings have it that he's even more upset with luke walton which is almost an impressive feat i mean look, there's way too much to say that it can all be laid at the feet of Luke Walton. I mean, this is a team that doesn't really have many players that are even average defenders, much less above average defenders. But I mean, it seems at times like the team has checked out on Luke, and even if they hadn't checked out on Luke and he could wear a mask correctly, um, I am (laughs) very, very not impressed with the past season and a quarter-ish of Walton. And Granted, part of that is because I was a very big fan of Dave Yeager and did not want the Kings to fire him.
0: I was too, and I I am in full agreement with you.
1: Yeah. Um, So I am hoping that either the Kings fire Walton soon and replace him with Alvin Gentry and sort of see how that goes, because if you're already the worst defense in the league by a gigantic margin, why not make Alvin Gentry your
0: i mean at least you guys would you know play fast um faster probably than what you already are here here's my this team is
1: not in the top 10 in pace right now there is absolutely no excuse for this sacramento kings team not being in the top 10 in the league in pace
0: yeah so i was going to bring that up actually so i am a proponent of you build around your best players skill sets novel concept i know um and in the 2018-19 season, I just started working at iHeart, and I swear to you, there I can't, I obviously I don't have to tell you how many Kings fans are, you know, obviously I'm in Sacramento, I don't have to tell you how many Kings fans are in the building, in the iHeart building. They were hyped, and I remember doing reports on the Kings, and everybody was buzzing about the Kings, like, oh, we could make the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. The team was fun. De'Aaron Fox took a leap as a second-year player and as a playmaker, and it was just fun in the open court. The Kings were third in pace in the 2018-19 season. They fire Jaeger and hire Luke Walton, and the Kings were... Let's look. Let's look. This is great podcasting. Uh, 19th in pace. 19th in pace. Basketball reference has them 20th. But oh, I'm way. looking at NBA.com and cleaning the glass. Um, I mean. Either way. Not either great. way. Not great. And this year, they're not even. Well, NBA.com has them ninth. I'm sure they're probably somewhere between nine and 11th on multiple websites. But even still, with the athletes that they have, the shooting that they have, there is no excuse that this team should not be at least, or there is no excuse that, that this team shouldn't be in the top five. Like they should be one of the fastest teams in the NBA and they're just not. And that's probably why they have a third, the 13th. That's one of the reasons why I think they have the 13th uh, ranked offensive rating. They're not playing fast enough. Um, They're, I mean, they're like you said, their defense is already putrid. So why not just pick up the pace more, get more possessions, get your star point guard going, and just go from there? But for some reason, Luke changed the philosophy. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, they are also bottom third in three point attempts and three point makes, despite having one, two, three, four. Five players who's sh- on the team who shoot thirty five percent from thirty five percent or better from three, and two of them, Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald, are clearly the best shooters on the team. <laughs> and I just don't understand why it's so hard to pick up the pace and improve this offense.
1: See, last year there was a theoretical excuse in the sense that. If Corey Joseph is your backup point guard and he is not a transition player, not a playing at pace kind of player, then, you know, it sort of makes a little bit more sense. But this season you have Halliburton, who probably his greatest skill is that he makes decisions on the fly, like a 10 year NBA vet. You've got him and De'Aaron Fox between the two of them, you've got 48 minutes of really high quality point guard play from guys who work best when the pace is as high as possible. And yet, you know, here they are, I have the basketball reference numbers up. So they're 11th in pace there, which, you know, it's an improvement from near the bottom 10 last season, but they're a clear top five team in terms of pace in terms of pretty much anything you can think of. Right. I mean, it's not just that you have Halliburton and Fox it's that buddy Heald does really well in transition when he can get trailing threes uh, Rashawn Bagley, Holmes can run the floor. Yeah, Rashawn Holmes can run the floor. Marvin Bagley's greatest NBA skill is his athleticism. Glenn Robinson was a recent Doug Contest champion. Like, these are guys who are at their best when they can run in the open court, and they're just not playing in an offense that caters to that, and it's infuriating.
0: So, let's move on to some fun stuff. <laughs> All right. Yes, so please. So, like I said at the beginning, Tyrese Halliburton has been basketball cocaine for the Kings fan base. Uh, to me, he's the rookie of the year. Uh, let me just read off the stats for this guy who quite frankly, he sh- should be starting. I don't know who yes. you would put in the. I don't know who you would boot from the starting line. I, well, Marvin Bagley, probably. Um, I just answered my own question, <laughs> but um, Tyrese Halliburton is ala- averaging over 11 points per game. Five assists per game, three rebounds per game, on 50% shooting from the field, 47% from three on 4.7 attempts per game. This, and um, looking at the true shooting percentage, it, it, that comes out to 64.6. This guy is fucking good. I remember, so on my other podcast, the Box Out Banter podcast, I co host with uh, Chris Okamura, we did. Um, favorite draft prospects and uh, Tyrese Halliburton was one of my five favorite prospects I cannot believe he fell to you guys I was so hyped when he fell to you guys because that dude I don't care about his funky ass shot it goes in and also I think that shot helps him with his pump fake game like he gets people with those pump fakes like he's really adept at that sidestep like pump fake three already he I remember in the preseason he had one in the corner versus portland and i was like oh shit like that like he knows how he knows his own shot like he doesn't need to change it like that was like the first like confirmation for me where i was like okay he didn't need to change the shot great passer size great rebounder i thought he was a little thin so i thought he was going to struggle on the defensive end wrong he's one of the best he he is already a good defender as a rookie and it's not maybe on ball he could get a little bigger and thicker, but I you remember that, um you remember that play he did versus the Knicks where he basically ed readed the corner, uh the corner three. He let he allowed the three point shooter in the corner to be open, knowing that there was nowhere else for um I forgot who was driving the ball, but knowing that there was nowhere else for the ball handler to go, and the ball handler threw the open through to what he thought was an open shooter in the corner, and Halliburton, you know, read it and stole it, and it's that type of stuff he's been doing, where, like you said, he he looks like a 10-year vet out there. I don't see a rookie. When I watch the Sixers and Tyrese Maxey is playing, he has, some, he has some pop and flashes here and there, but I could tell he's a rookie out there. With Tyrese Halliburton, he was already in the closing lineup in the first game of the damn season against the Nuggets, and... It's been impressive. And he's to me I'm not saying he's a clear cut rookie of the year, but he is in my on top of my rankings.
1: I think uh Lamello would give him a run for his money oh, yeah. at this point. I but... would have him
0: behind yeah, I would have LaMelo behind Halliburton too.
1: Yeah, I think they're the pretty clear one, two. And you know, the thing with Halliburton, it's funny that you brought up earlier, who would you take out of the starting lineup? Oh, Marvin Bagley. But <laughs> it's not really just sort of the obvious, uh, Marvin has not exactly had a particularly great season in a number of different ways. But really, the way I think about it is that the Kings have four players who are pretty clearly in their closing group. De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Harrison Barnes, Rashawn Holmes. Yep. Those four guys belong in the closing group, right? And yep. so the question is, who's the fifth guy? And if the fifth guy is Marvin Bagley, you're playing Harrison Barnes at the three, which is probably not the best place for him. Uh, you're obviously playing Marvin Bagley at the four and Rashawn Holmes at the five. But if you put Tyrese Halliburton in, you've got three guards, but Halliburton's at least six six with a decent wingspan. He could you know, switch on to wing players for... Moments, even though he's gonna get destroyed by anyone who weighs more than two hundred pounds. But <laughs> when you have that as your closing five, you have so much more versatility than when you go with the Fox, Healed, Barnes, Bagley, Holmes group. And that's something that you don't really say about any rookie that they're clearly belonging in the closing lineup and clearly one of the team's better defenders already.
0: And the the second best playmaker already.
1: (laughs) Yes, and the second best playmaker too, and they picked him twelfth.
0: Yeah, that it's like when he fell to when he started falling, and it got to the tenth pick. I was, I mean, I don't want to sound like Bill Simmons here because I disagree with like ninety percent of the shit he says, but um, I was hoping the Suns like him. I was hoping the Suns would take Halliburton. That would have been such a nasty addition to a team that's i think a western conference finalist but when he fell to you guys i mean that's the future right that's kind of the future right there right like i still have questions about halliburton's ultimate ceiling um i think the ceiling is higher than what i originally thought but it's the he's not necessarily the quickest guy in the world or the best athlete in the world is why i probably would put a limit on his ceiling but that guy is absolutely, he could absolutely be the second or third best player on a championship team, I think.
1: Yeah, coming into his rookie year, I thought it was like, you know, he's got a really high floor, but his ceiling is probably like fourth or fifth starter, and he's already a fourth or fifth <laughs> Already, so, right off the bat. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of put limits on him at this point after I was proven so egregiously wrong about his ceiling going into this but you know even if he is that second best guy who you know maybe he makes a couple all-star teams maybe he doesn't you know just saying a couple all-star teams is like way above where i thought he would be at the start of the season and the best part of all is that he is a nearly perfect complement to deer and fox i mean he's someone who can be a primary playmaker when he's the lead point guard but he's also Really good at working off the ball, working as a secondary creator alongside Deer and Fox. He's got a little more size, so he can guard larger players, especially, you know, two, three years from now when he's at 190 pounds (laughs) as opposed to 175 pounds. (laughs) And, you know, that is a spectacular backcourt. The only problem with said spectacular backcourt in theory, you know, they cover for each other's weaknesses nearly perfectly, is... You've got another 100 million dollar man in the backcourt already.
0: Yeah, and uh speaking of that 100 million dollar man, I wanted to get a gauge on where you're at with DeAaron Fox right now. Um in some ways he had a career year scoring the ball, took a took a large step back with uh, the three point attempts. I imagine I there I think there's some noise in that number basically because of the pace they were playing at and um, their offense just – their offense wasn't conducive to Fox, I think, getting a better shot diet, uh, especially on the three-point line. Um, I, but this year, he's back up to 36%. Um, but last year, in some ways, he took a step back, and now we're in year four. I think he's, he's played better and the team is playing faster, but there's still – like, a, I still feel like, and it might sound simplistic, but there, I feel like there's still another level within this year that he could get to because it, I could tell he's still trying to figure some stuff out. But he has, he, from the minute he got the starting job as a rookie, you could tell he was starting already to take command of the responsibility of being the point guard for the franchise. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, what have you, seen from fox in year four how have you liked his progression since he was drafted we were both big fans of deer and fox i remember we were we've talked about it ad nauseum before especially when we were at hashtag especially at hashtag basketball in the slack channel so how how have you how would you assess uh mr fox so two things.
1: Uh, first of all, when I said other hundred million dollar man in the backcourt, I actually meant Buddy healed which is
0: <laughs> oh well. I think okay, so I got thrown off because he make I think he it's an eighty million dollar contract. So I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's like
1: one hundred and five <laughs> with incentives, but like eighty something was
0: was guaranteed. With like what
1: he's actually likely to hit. Yeah. Yeah. No, but going back to De'Aaron Fox. Um, Really last season was weird because he was hurt for a lot of the year and then he yeah. came back and was just starting to heat up right before the league shut down and then and you know, was not exactly his best self in the bubble. The three point shooting has been really a positive development this year. Granted, he did hit thirty-seven percent in 2018-19. Yeah, the fun but year <laughs> that was really just purely open looks. This year he started trying to work in you know more step backs more threes off movement which will be really helpful for him going forward i'm very pleased on that front it's hard to put too much blame on him for the defensive struggles just because this team as a whole has been absolutely torched on that end of course but he also allowed 40 and 13 to dame lillard in that trailblazers game that you brought up earlier and really he's just not helping is i think the biggest thing and you know at this Point, he's getting so much better at drawing free throws and getting to the line because he's just bigger, right? He doesn't Mm -hmm. weigh like four pounds like he did his rookie year. But, you know, on the flip side, I would also think that, you know, now that he's got a little more heft to him, he's got all of the physical tools to be one of the best defenders in the league. But he's still really been kind of below average this year. So I will say that I'm very happy with how his offense has looked this year, especially, you know, improved three point diet. And getting to the line sort of more like he did last year rather than, and towards the end of last year in particular, rather than his first years in the league. But the defense, I was hoping for more, and granted, I was hoping for more from the whole team. But really, De'Aaron, you know, he just signed that max contract extension. He's going to need to bring it on the defensive end of the floor as well if this team is ever going to make it back to the playoffs. And. That's been disappointing from him this year. But the offensive end, I think, has been great.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, It has been – it's kind of like – it's like when Colin Sexton was first coming into the league and everybody thought defense was going to be his calling card. But, um, you know, uh, and obviously – well, this year the Cavs have had one of the best defenses in the league, and Colin Sexton is a, also a part of that. But when he first came into the league, he was just a bad defender, and that's how I felt about Fox. And I felt incremental improvements, but and I know he's only twenty three years old. But I, I at some point in like year four or year five, um, I would like to see him step up and be an average or above average defender. Cause he has the physical tools. He's has one of the quickest first steps. He's lateral movement is, is off the charts. He's just a freak physically as an athlete. And he's gotten bigger. Like you said, long wingspan. He can stay in front of people. It's just, you would like to see more of that. And I imagine as he gets older, as this team gets older in uh, Monty McNair or um, yeah, Monty McNair figures out, um, what to add around this core down the line. I think the defense overall would improve and also the coach, a coaching change also, um, which I think could happen. Um, I don't know if it will happen, but um, obviously Luke wasn't Monty's guy. So that's why I, that's why I'm kind of thinking maybe if this doesn't improve soon or if they finish, with a bad record, but it's like in spectacular shit-tacular fashion, then I imagine he won't be there. But um, yeah, I I still like the progress of De'Aaron Fox. And to my coworker, Albert, who in the 2018-19 season, me and him had an argument of who was having a better year, Fox or Jason Tatum. And I said, Fox, full stop. He was like, Jason Tatum's better. It's like, "Eh, I take De'Aaron Fox down the road. I'm wrong. You're right, (laughs) by the way. But I would still, De'Aaron is Still, I think he's going to be one of the best point guards in the league still. Um, speak Going on to other players, um, to the non-Fox players, I wanted to know, there's players you could pick from this roster that have, I know the Kings have had a bad record, but some players have been playing really well. I just want to know some of the non-Fox players that have stuck out to you uh, so far this season.
1: So the biggest one is a favorite of both of ours. Rashawn Holmes has a positive net rating. I know. <laughs> the Kings outscore their opponents when he's on the court. They have the 29th worst net rating in basketball this year, just ahead of the falling apart Minnesota Timberwolves. And yet the team scores more than they give up when Rashawn Holmes is on the floor. And that's you know really, really telling. He, It's funny because I thought that Dwayne Dedman was going to be an excellent signing for the Kings. And I thought Rashawn Holmes was, you know, a throw-in contract at the end of free agency. We all thought that. (laughs) Let's hope he's a good backup big, but maybe that's a bit pricey for a good backup big. And (laughs) that Dwayne Dedman signing did not work out. But Rashawn Holmes might be the best Kings free agent signing since, like, 2005. I mean, it's really absurd just how (laughs) wow. Better not, display, Rajon Rondo. In that contract, uh, no comment. <laughs> Aggressively, no comment. But yeah, the thing about Holmes is, you know, he's not an exceptional defender, but he's so much better than their other defensive options. I mean, Marvin Bagley at center does not work defensively. Just period, full stop. Hassan Whiteside, his box score numbers look very good if you let him play for long enough. And every once, like, he'll have one or two plays every week that make you wonder, why does he not get more playing time? And then mm-hmm. you see every other second that he's on the court and say, that's why he doesn't get more playing
0: that's time. That's why he has the minimum.
1: <laughs> there you go. But Rashawn Holmes has been a delight, as always, and he makes that push shot, like, 90% of the time. I don't even that think that push a good shot. <laughs> At one point this year, he was shooting 86% on it. Like, that's Mm -hmm. not even a joke. That's actually how many of those he was making. It was 13 for 15 or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, the defense has made this season frustrating at times as a fan. But all frustration can be canceled out by watching Rashawn Holmes and Tyrese Halberton play for more than 30 (laughs) seconds together. So... Rashawn Holmes is always fun and somehow again the Kings are outscoring their opponents when he's on the court. I keep repeating that because I keep being shocked by it every time. Well, I me too,
0: considering it. that his first three years of Philadelphia, I thought he had the potential to be a good backup center. And some of it was Brett Brown, not he he has a tendency not to trust young raw players, unless obviously they're like Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. But um I always thought Rashawn had the talent to play in the league. And every time he got minutes, he was at least, while he might have been more reckless as a younger player, at least he was making stuff happen with the blocked shots and that push shot. I am so glad Kings fans, Suns fans too, because I have a few friends that are Phoenix Suns fans. I'm glad they got to experience uh, the Rashawn Holmes uh, push shot, because I'm al- I am always think um, some players like that who are maybe – offensively limited or are confined to certain roles on offense. Like it's always cool to see like how those type of players innovate and try to figure out an effective, like, not an isolation move, but their own pet shot, you know? And um I'm glad you guys got to get to know the glory of the Rashawn Holmes push shot. And I'm also happy he's just an impact player now because there was on the flip side, there was also a reason he wasn't he was struggling to get consistent minutes in Philadelphia. He was a bad player, um, and at 24, at that point, you were wondering, okay, he's one of the older players. Um, w- like, is he gonna is he gonna realize, you know, not his his potential as a rotation player? And I remember <laughs> my first NBA media day was last year in Sacramento, and one of the first questions I asked to a player. Uh, was Rashawn Holmes and was nervous as hell because obviously I'm a Sixer fan and Rashawn Holmes is in process war he his rookie year was the 10 win (laughs) 76ers and um I was I basically asked him what his mindset was going into this because like you said Deadman was the big free agent signing it was what was it a three-year 30 million dollar deal he was making 10 mil a year three-year
1: 40 million 40 million
0: that's what it was oh god um and uh, you know, obviously, yep. he had a. Obviously, he was expected to be the big guy, but Rashawn Holmes came in, and he ends up starting and making an impact. Eventually, starting and making an impact right away, and I'm just happy to see him uh, succeed. It that's just that's all I had to. I just wanted to give my piece on Rashawn because he has a connection to my fandom as a Sixer fan, and to just see former process Sixers everywhere. uh, Uh, advancing and getting better as players, they will always get a shout out on the podcast. So I was hoping you would bring up Rashawn.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think the biggest change from process Rashawn to current day Rashawn is he's just gotten a lot less jumpy on the defensive end.
0: Yes. He still fouls
1: too much, but it used to be that he would constantly just be jumping out of position on every play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's still fouling more than he should, but he's gotten so much better at that particular area of the game it's more handsy
0: fa- really it's more handsy reason. fouls than anything I think yeah. like it's not like him biting on a pump fake like he used to in uh, Philly and Phoenix um he, he is you're absolute you're right on about that he has gotten a lot more disciplined on that end of the floor it's still averaging a career high in fouls per game but I think that's more I think that's more touch fouls than anything also there's just this season's weird man and yeah. <laughs> I just, I just feel like that number. There's a lot of noise in it because when I watch Rashawn, I don't see him making the same boneheaded mistakes as he was these last two seasons. Really, I haven't seen him make the same mistakes as much as uh, early in his career. Um, how about Harrison Barnes? Um, traded last year, uh, was basically he's one of those. Always been one of those players where he is. A solid player but because he was drafted a seventh overall I believe and was a highly touted high school recruit highly touted college prospect coming out of North Carolina he was already a champion but he kind of didn't reach that peak of the potential we thought he had as like a good player borderline all-star maybe a little bit more but he's always been a solid player and a versatile player because he could play one through four and there, there was some, I wouldn't say uproar, but it was like uh, Harrison Barnes. Like it's like, it's, it's like bland. I don't know what a uh, bland food would be, but I Harrison Barnes would be, was sounded like he was that to Kings fans, but he's been pretty good this year. What have you seen from Harrison Barnes uh, this season?
1: So full disclosure, I was vehemently against the trade. When yeah, you, you
0: were, I remember <laughs>
1: terrible move. And I just assumed that some god awful extension was coming. And at the end of that season, he signed a four year, $85 million contract. And I was just prepared to be upset about it for the next four years. And instead, he had a, a decent year last year. Mm-hmm. And he's been really surprisingly solid this year. You know, not that he wasn't solid last year, but he's definitely taken a step up this year. And. The Kings, with their recent win over the Knicks, ended a four-game losing streak. And honestly, that four-game losing streak could really be tied to Harrison just having a couple of really awful games in that losing streak. And he's been the bellwether in a lot of ways for the Kings this season. He's and always
0: hit. He's always hitting a big shot when like a run is happening or something like that, just to stop the. He's always a solid presence.
1: Yeah, and you know, he's honestly like their only forward <laughs> defender that's, you know, any good. And he's not at all the reason for their defense being as atrocious as it has been. And, you know, he's averaging sixteen points a game, you know, six rebounds, three and a half assists, solid shooting splits, 48, 39, and eighty four from the line. I mean, he's doing Everything and more that I think it would have been reasonable to hope for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe given the size of that contract, you could have hoped for a little more. But ultimately, at this point, he's 28, but he's also pretty much the veteran on this squad. And he's had a very solid year and has been a part of the Kings best moments this year. And his struggles have been pretty indicative of their worst games this year as well.
0: Yeah, Harrison Barnes has been he's been solid. Uh, it, all those percentages you laid out come out to a nice 60 true shooting percentage too. Shooting 39% from 3. That he has been a very calming force for the Kings whenever things get frenetic. Um and like you said, he he is there to me there are a lot more other problems with the Kings defense besides th- that I don't think Harrison Barnes is a part of. I also, honestly, I want to exempt Tyrese Halliburton from this too, because I've just been so impressed with what I've seen from him on that end of the floor as well. But, um, yeah, Harrison Barnes has been a solid, um, one more thing before I ask you the last Kings question, Marvin Bagley, the third. Um, yes. So he is a basketball player. Yeah. Yes. He is a basketball player. Um, how good yeah, of a basketball, basketball player situation. how how good of a basketball player um remains to be seen i think um uh, in some ways because i have to be fair he was hurt a lot last year and has only played 90 nba games as a third year player i still there is still part of me that believes in the talent of marvin bagley but i'm looking at this fit and now that Halliburton's in the fold, Harrison Barnes is showing to be a solid player for the Kings for the duration of that contract. Rashawn Holmes, I'm just I'm starting to see the window closing on Bagley's time in Sacramento because next summer they're gonna be they're gonna be extension talks, and I would not extend Bagley like that. To me, that would be. And I know he's a, I know he was the second pick of the draft and he is always going to be the guy who was past, who was picked over Luka, even though Kings fans knew that this was going to be the pick ahead of time. And they were basically rioting and protesting (laughs) the pick. I just, there is, I just don't know, like I would not extend Bagley. I think that would be malpractice. And I know that would hurt. Considering who you guys picked over him, but if I was a GM and I'm trying to build a success a team successfully, especially for the long haul, Bagley hasn't shown me enough to warrant an extension. I would have to see a good fourth year, or I would trade him at the trade deadline. So I'm wondering what's your feeling on Marvin Bagley and how the Kings should move forward with Bagley because also another factor in this he's not Monty McNair's draft pick by the way so I could see where he doesn't really see the connection and he could just move it'd be easier to move on from him as opposed to if Vlade thank god he's not still at the GM but if Vlade was still the GM he would be getting an extension oh yeah so I'm wondering what, it's, w- what what would you do? How should they move forward with this? As a fan, what does Nick Agar Johnson want to see?
1: It's really difficult. I mean, first of all, I just feel bad for him. I mean, the vast majority of the reason why he's sort of in this position is because he's missed so much time with injury over his first couple of years. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Luka thing, it's not fair to him at all that that hangs over his head. Yes. You know, he was not the person in the room making that decision. But the thing with Bagley is, I thought coming in, you know, Vladdy said the ridiculous stuff about, oh, he's, you know, four can play some three for oh, us. Oh, God. Which, That's one of the worst
0: I, quotes I've heard. <laughs> just
1: horrific. But the thing with Bagley is, I thought that his best position coming into the league was going to be as a small ball center. You know, I thought, okay, he's someone who has a theoretically solid three point shot. He's got a great jumper. He's a a ridiculous athlete. If you put him at center, he's going to be faster than anybody who's as big as him and, you know, obviously bigger than anyone who isn't as big as him. But really this year, I've started to realize he just does not work as a center at all because he can't protect the rim.
0: Mm-hmm. According
1: to nba.com, this is absurd. According to nba.com, he is allowing and this is not a typo, 76% shooting near the rim. Holy shit. 76%. It's like every single person who tries to score on Marvin Bagley in the lane just becomes LeBron James, becomes like prime LeBron James driving to the rim. And, you know, if you cannot defend the rim and you are six foot eleven, you know, there really aren't as many options for you if you're sort of locked into the power forward spot. Wait, hold and up. 76%?
0: 76%. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: But, you know, the thing is, like, his three point shot has looked much better this year. He's averaging nearly three attempts per game, hitting 35% of them. Yep. If he goes to a team where he can be a stretch four and get a lot of offensive possessions. I think he could you know, still live up to the ceiling that he had coming into the league. I think the problem is just that, you know, I laid this out earlier. The Kings' best closing unit is De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Tyrese Halliburton, Harrison Barnes, and Rashawn Holmes, and Marvin Bagley is not on that list. And if you can't play him at backup center behind Rashawn Holmes, and you're starting him at power forward really more for pedigree than anything else, I mean, if you were purely basing the starting lineup on who has played best so far this season, it would be that same closing five that I gave you earlier. Yep. I think the problem is that Marvin clearly has a ton of talent and I think there still is a lane for him to, you know, maybe still be an all-star someday, but I just don't think that the Kings are the right team for that. I think that, you know, let's say Jeremy Grant had stayed in Detroit and Detroit had given up a package for Marvin Bagley. I think he could be wonderful there. I think if somehow the Kings could find a package that worked with the Washington wizards, I think he could be really fun there too. You know, there are teams where I think he could really live up to his potential in a way that I just don't think he can in Sacramento because there are so many holes on this roster that he doesn't fill and the things that he does well, you know, the Kings are already decently set at, right? Like, Harrison Barnes is already a stretch for. They don't need Marvin Bagley to grow into that role. Yep. Rashawn Holmes is already a solid center, and granted he's a free agent at the end of this year, and I really hope the Kings re-sign him, but Rashawn is clearly better than Marvin at center. And mm-hmm. you know when you run through it like that, there just won't be the window for Marvin to get the opportunity that he needs on this Kings team. So in my position, I would try to trade him, but the problem is his value has literally never been lower. So yep. you're basically just having a fire sale at that point. And if you're having a fire sale, you know, maybe you hope that over the course of the rest of the season, he solidifies that three-point shot. And he's looked better on defense the last few games than he did, you know, earlier in the season. And I think a lot of that is effort. And if that continues, you know, maybe he looks better on the defensive end and you can get a pe- better package for him in the off season. But... I just don't think the Kings are the right team for him to maximize his talents. And I don't think that he will have a lane to the kind of opportunity that he wants on the Kings roster, given the way it's currently constructed.
0: Agreed. It's, it's like the Kings problems. It's a bunch of circles and Marvin Bagley is a square peg kind of, like you said, he has very good skills that the Kings already have in spades, but he also does not, cover up any of the weaknesses they have as well and also yeah I just don't see how um I just don't see how his future is isn't I just don't see how he stays in sack uh beyond um the start of the I would be surprised if he was a king going into next season um I could see him maybe playing Play, having a really good fourth season in the, or a really good year next year and then trade him by the trade deadline then. But yeah, I totally agree with everything you just said about Bagley. I still think he's talented. So hopefully he gets to a spot where he could realize his potential. Um One last Kings question and then we'll get to some uh, fun general NBA topic to help. I'm going to pull you out of the Kings hell and we're going to do some fun. <laughs> but one more thing. I want, I'm want. i going to do this with every guest I have on when they talk about their team, but I want you to give me an unpopular opinion about your team. So everybody, like I go to the Sixers subreddit and all the Sixers internet places. I'm sure other fan bases do too. And I know you do as well. And there are definitely takes that people parrot. There are popular takes that are consensus knowledge i guess among the fan base i want to know what your unpopular opinion is about your team
1: wow (laughs) unpopular that's tough um honestly i think the most unpopular one might be that the kings will be better off if they hold on to marvin bagley for longer maybe through the end of this year because his value is not going to get any lower than It is right now, and maybe, you know, towards the end of the season, he could sort of rehab his value. I'm not sure how unpopular this take is, but it's certainly a bolder take than that, which is Corey Joseph should not play another minute for the Sacramento Kings this season.
0: Ooh, so you don't want to see any more of the veteran presence that he provides.
1: (laughs) Here's the thing. Last year, Corey Joseph was one of the most frustrating offensive players to watch that I've ever seen in a Kings uniform, and that is a high bar, but his defense was good enough that I could justify him getting the kind of playing time he was. But he's getting 20 minutes a game for the Kings this year. He's shooting 27% from three. His defense has completely disappeared, and I don't think anything annoys me more in the NBA than watching Corey Joseph with 18 seconds on the shot clock pull the ball out from inside the three-point arc to like 40 feet out, Dribble for 15 seconds, and then rush into a contested pull-up 18-footer. I would be (laughs) so happy if I never, ever, ever had to see that again. So, you know, um, ultimately, like, you're not playing him for defense anymore. If you're trying to play the young guys, play Kyle Guy. Play Jamius Rizzi. Play anyone else. But I just don't understand why Corey Joseph continues to get minutes for this team. And (laughs) I don't think that his veteran presence is helpful enough to override the fact that he just doesn't contribute anything at this point if he can't be a top-notch defensive player. So that's, I think, a hotter take. Uh, Bench Corey Joseph. and
0: Yeah, there are definitely some Kings fans that definitely want to see more Kyle Guy minutes. I just don't understand how, like, they should be playing Woodard and Ramsey, too. Like, I would love to see these guys get minutes. I mean, they fit the mold of the – prospect that I like which is a big wing with an NBA ready body long wingspan and I would just I would love to have those type of players in spades and I would definitely try to play those guys to get more minutes Kyle guy I also don't understand I'm not just trying to sit here and tell you that Kyle guy is a world beater as a point guard but the guy can dribble and shoot out of he's a really good shooter And I think that alone should get him minutes over Joseph um, or at least eat into his minutes. Um, But, yeah, they had definitely I think they should be playing some of their young guys more as well. Um, Enough about the king. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You
1: don't think they can play even if you don't think they can play. Right. Which you didn't draft them if you don't think they can play. But just for the sake of the exercise, if you don't think they can play why are you not trying to find out what you have with them, right? Like, what yeah. benefit is there to playing Corey Joseph for 20 minutes when you, you know what he is and you know that he's not helping your team this season? Why not see what Kyle Guy can do? It's not like he's going to make the defense any worse, right? You know, mm-hmm. maybe he can shoot better than, again, 27% from three, and, you know, maybe that would help your team.
0: Like, that's that's one of my pet peeves with young NBA teams. Like, the Pelicans aren't playing Kira Lewis Jr. Um Like... If you have a young guy and you're a bad team, just play them, please. Um, But enough about the Sacramento Kings, or the Kangs, as people like to say. We're going to go to a fun topic, because I remember a few years ago, we were very high on guys like Giannis and Joel Embiid the last time we talked on this podcast. We talked about how they could be perennial MVP candidates. Since then, Giannis has won back-to-back MVPs. And Joel Embiid is an MVP frontrunner. So, what we're going to do here is since you're the guest, you get to go first. I want to know who are your three MVP candidates right now, uh, a little over a quarter into the NBA season?
1: So, number one is LeBron James. I mean, really, he has every element that you could think of for the MVP debate on his side. He still has a case as the best player in the league. His team is number one in the league. He's putting up 25-7-7 in 33 minutes a game. He's shooting 50-41-71 splits, 41% from three from LeBron James. He and Anthony Davis are leading the league's best defense, and their number one overall defense number is the same distance from the second-place Jazz as the Jazz are to sixth place. And if you're talking about, you know, sort of more iffy, wishy-washy kind of narrative-based discussion. I mean, it's hard to argue that LeBron won't always have a place in any sort of narrative-based MVP discussion. You know, he has- Are you a narrative-based voter? (laughs) I am not, but what I'm- I guess my point is that pretty much any MVP-type argument you go down, LeBron has an argument for either top of that list or near the top of that list.
0: Oh, yeah, I get what what you were saying. I was just- I was just poking fun oh. at Ramona Shelburne <laughs> for her narrative based MVP methods. Um, but yeah, <laughs> dude, LeBron isn't in- I relented um in October, but like he's the greatest player of all time. Um, and I'm sure people are like, Whoa, whoa, welcome to the fucking club finally. Okay, fine, fair. Um, but LeBron is he's incredible, man. Like last year, Everybody was like, oh, LeBron should be working out of the post as he gets older. He's like, nah, I'm going to play point guard and lead the league in assists for the first time in my career. And then he decides to shoot 41%. You want to know the last time LeBron shot at least 37% from three? It was Was his last season. In Miami? It was his last season with the Miami Heat he shot last season in Miami. Yeah. The last se- the 2013, 14 season, he shot 37, he shot 38%. Years after that, 35, 30, 36, 36, 33, 34, 41% from three on nine attempts per game, which is by far the highest of his career. This guy continues to break my brain when I watch him and I don't have him First, um, I'll I'll tell you who I have first. You could probably already suspect it, but I'm gonna it's let probably you... who I have number two. Yes, um, so I'm gonna let you continue. But LeBron is incredible. That's just all I had to add to it.
1: <laughs> so number two, I have the person who I'm willing to bet you have number one, Joel Embiid. Yes, <laughs> really, a lot of the same arguments for LeBron apply to Joel Embiid. I mean, he's leading the team with the best record in the Eastern Conference. He's averaging twenty-eight, twelve, and three. They fall apart with him not on the floor, and they have an 11.5 net rating with him on the floor, which would be well above the Lakers for the best mark in the league. His defense has been exceptional as usual, but he's shooting above 50% from the floor for the first time in his career. And not only that, he's shooting 55-41-83 splits.
0: It comes I mean, out to a 67 true shooting percentage. It's fucking absurd.
1: <laughs> it's ridiculous. And if LeBron weren't having this particular LeBron season or, you know, nine other LeBron seasons that are about at that level, Joel Embiid, I think, would be number one with a bullet. I mean, this Sixers team, you know, they're leading the Eastern Conference, but when Joel doesn't play, I mean, you know, that 11.5 net rating with him on the floor— Philly has a 3.1 net rating overall. I mean, <laughs> you do the math there, right?
0: Oh, let me. Okay. So I took some notes before this and um, I'll probably just read off my list because I imagine, I have a feeling I know who your third is. Um, I'm not going to oh, guess, okay. but I'm not going to guess, but um, I'll let you know. Uh, but here's Envy Bead. I hate that, but I wanted to say that. But like you said, when Embiid doesn't play, And it's amazing. Last year, Al Horford was the de facto backup point guard. Dwight Howard is the best backup center in basketball. The Sixers have better fitting players around their two best players this year. Somehow, this team is still dog shit when Embiid sits. So, when Embiid is on the court, the Sixers have a 105.7 defensive rating. That's second in the NBA per cleaning the glass. Their offensive rating is, um, their, or, um, their offensive rating when he's on the court is 117.6 which would be 3rd and by the way he has never had this much impact on an offensive rating on off splits uh at this point than at any point in his career like this is by far like the best o- he has looked um op- the team has looked offensive rating wise when he's on the floor when he's off the sixers have a 113.8 defensive rating that's 24th In the league. So they go from second to 24th in the NBA in defensive rating. Offensively, they go from third at 117.6 points per 100 possessions to when he's off the floor. The offensive rating is 103.6, which I put in bold letters in my notes dead fucking last. It is atrocious when they play. The Sixers got killed by the Pistons yesterday without Embiid. Like yeah, this team like to me. Why I have Embiid bead number one is for that reason. It's almost LeBron like value, and I know I shouldn't be throwing Embiid's name in a in the in the same breath as LeBron historically, but it really is. It it really is LeBron like value. He has a plus, like you said, plus 11, an eleven point nine net rating when he's on the court, minus ten when he's off. For it's real. it's absurd.
1: And like you said, the Kings aren't even minus 10.
0: It's, it's wild. We really are probably the worst team. We've been playing like the worst team in the league when he doesn't play and he's averaging 28, 11, and three. And the three assists doesn't really do justice. The impact he has had with the offense. It's a lot of hockey assists and um, him coming, passing out of double teams, 10.7 free throw attempts per game on 83. The dude is an animal. And he has been tossing dudes around. And it's just amazing when you, you figure out, hey, maybe we should put shooting around our best players and not five power forwards that like the same spots on the floor as our two best players. A novel concept.
1: Um, I don't want to bring up the fact that maybe part of the reason they've also been so bad with him beat off the floor this year is because Ben Simmons is not having a great season.
0: Yeah, I know. I have talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast. I am, I've hated Ben's offensive approach this year. Like if you're going to be the second star, I'm sorry. You cannot be this bad. Like, and I know Simmons has flaws offensively. He's better than this. He's better than this. He's been bad, you know? And yeah, fair point. I understand why you brought it up, but uh, who's your third? (laughs)
1: So I actually struggled with my third one. There were a few players who I thought made sense here. I don't think Giannis has had a good enough year to be considered. I thought Paul George had maybe had a good enough year to be considered, Same. but I'm holding off on that front. And Nikola Jokic, I think, has also done quite a bit to conser- to deserve a spot here, but I ended up going with Kevin Durant.
0: Okay okay oh so I so okay I I I was wrong on that I thought you were gonna get go with Jokic is who I have
1: yeah he was he would have been four for sure and I definitely debated it I mean really the difference is that they have basically the same record right now 11 and 8 versus 10 and 7 except Mm -hmm. Jokic is Denver's only star and you know Kevin Durant has Kyrie Irving and now James Harden but really I mean the Nets the eight part of the Nets 11 and 8 record is not due to kevin durant he's by far their best defensive starter which granted is saying nothing at all but he's still a much better defender than i would have expected coming off that achilles tear and he's averaging a casual 38 and 6 on 52 45 86 (laughs) shooting splits
0: it's absurd literally literally everything he is doing is way more than I expected coming off an Achilles. He's already the se- he's the second best player in the league. Still, <laughs> it's yeah. wild.
1: It- yeah, I mean, it's not just that he hasn't taken a major step back; it's that he almost hasn't taken a step back at all. Like he does look a little slower on the defensive yeah. end than he did before, and there's still a bit of rust that you'll see occasionally, like he'll, you know, <laughs> dribble off his leg or something in a way that maybe he wouldn't have.
0: And he's 32, so the vertical pop isn't there as much. But he's still the same dude, man. Like, it's absurd. (laughs) You
1: bring up the he's 32 thing, right? Like, that's the thing is it's hard to tell if his step back athleticism-wise is just because he's older, right? It almost has nothing to do with the Achilles. Like, he certainly has the best Achilles recovery since Dominique Wilkins. And honestly, if he keeps this up, you know he's probably going to be the standard bearer for that going forward.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Clay Thompson should be. I, I'm way more optimistic about Clay Thompson now, uh, seeing how John Wall is still one of the faster players in the league. Uh, Post Achilles, putting up that 28, 17, yeah. and five the other way. Our week. guy, our guy, Boogie, Boogie forever. By the way, Boogie, uh, absolutely forever. Yes. Boogie forever, and now 100%. Kevin Durant and if I'm Clay Thompson, I am so much more optimistic. I still have questions when Clay comes back defensively, but I have no doubt he's still going to be the same offense impactful offensive player that he's always been. Um so I guess before I look over my li- or go over my list, I should talk about the discrepancy we have which is third and it's not a discrepancy. I mean, I had I was battling between Durant and Jokic myself. Um but I just love the season Jokic is having. It's 25-12-9. He was averaging a triple-double basically earlier in the season, 64% true shooting percentage. The offense when he's on the court is the best offensive rating in NBA history, um, per cleaning the glass at least. The the quibbles you could have with him is, you know, he's gotten better better defensively but he's still somebody who could be attacked. The Nuggets as a whole just allow a lot of points, especially that starting unit. Um and their defensive rating is way better when Jokic is off the floor, but the offense is so good and he's such a sublime player that it doesn't even matter. And I think the Nuggets are starting to pick it up a little bit. Um Michael Porter Jr is back. Hopefully Jamal Murray starts to get rolling more. I'm still holding out hope that Gary Harris can rediscover the early seasons of his career where he was a 38% three-point shooter and a really good defender. And it was one of my first bouts with NBA Twitter because I remember when Woj announced the extension for Harris everybody was up in arms about it. And I remember replying to the tweet, like the people bitching about Harris's contract have watched two nuggets games and everybody flooded my fucking mentions. <laughs> and now yeah, I I'm had sure to go- that was a fun night for you. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, this is a, I guess it was an interesting first experience with NBA Twitter. Um, but Hopefully Gary Harris could regain form there. I just like that the nuggets are starting to roll now. And Jokic is full stop a tier one franchise player, top seven A player. And I I the numbers he's putting up is absurd. But like you said, Kevin Durant easily has a case. And some of the games the Nets have lost, he's missed some games. Um and I guess I can't really hold the Nets my concerns about the Nets defense and rebounding over Durant's MVP case because I just laid out that the Nuggets are terrible defensively when Jokic is on the court. But I just I like the way the Nuggets are trending. And I think if Jokic keeps up this play, the Nuggets are going to be a second or third seed. I think they're going to catch the Suns eventually as they try to figure stuff out. So that's why I had Jokic third. I mean, you could go either or. Um, Of course, the other discrepancy is um we both had Embiid and LeBron flipped I already went off about LeBron and Embiid but yeah uh Jokic it to me is Jokic to me has been a little I wouldn't say a little bit better than Durant I just think he's had a little bit of a better season um but you know it's Kevin it's Kevin Durant. I can't believe he's still this good. And I'm probably gonna look like an idiot by the end of the season once the Nets start get roll once the Nets start to get the ball rolling. Um I wanted to talk actually. You brought up Giannis. Um and I wanted to get your thoughts on something because I have a little bit of a tangent about this, and I was thinking about this today. So we all acknowledge that the MVP is a regular season award, right? Yes. And I don't know where you stand on the whole, for the last decade, LeBron should be MVP every year. Because my argument has always been, yes, if I were to pick any player for a game for my life, I would take LeBron full stop. But the MVP is a regular season award. And if you're coasting, then I don't think you, and if you're coasting and it costs you an MVP, I think that's fair. Because um, there were better players that, or players who had better seasons that year, right? And so, and we can't go off of LeBron's playoff success to be like, when LeBron finishes his playoff runs and be like, oh, LeBron should have been the MVP all along. On the flip side of that, I'm really bothered by how Giannis was basically just automatically disqualified from the award before the season started. I get that he has fell short in the playoffs. He has very discernible flaws. But if I were to say the MVP is a regular season award, and that's why LeBron didn't win all those MVPs that everybody thinks he deserves, on the flip side, I cannot deny Giannis a chance at an MVP trophy because he's already won two and... Basically, media members are sick of voting for the guy because of his playoffs uh, lack of playoff success. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's backwards to me. And that's why I would have Giannis fifth, because while he hasn't been as good as last year, which, by the way, is historically great. The Bucks were on pace at one point for 70 wins. They're still third in the conference. They're still figuring stuff out. But Giannis, once again, is averaging 27, 11 and 5 on very high efficiency. He is the Bucks' best defender. Well, you could argue who's is it is it the Bucks philosophy that has helped uh the Bucks and why they are they have been a historically great defense, blah, blah, blah. But Giannis is still the best defender on a top defense. And they're still one of the elite teams in the East. They're third in the East. They have a high winning percentage, and I'm going to go off winning percentages probably more this year than ever just because of the uh, regular season, mm-hmm. but or the short and regular season. But I just I don't know. The Bucks have the second-best offense. Their defense has kind of slipped back a little bit, but they are still a contender, and they still have an absurd point differential. I just think it's absurd and insane that Giannis was just automatically disqualified and if i were to do an mvp an mvp ballot myself i wouldn't consider voter vote the concept of voter fatigue to me i guess at the end of this long rant i think the concept of voter fatigue is stupid and narrative-based voting is stupid
1: so i will start by saying that i completely agree with you that being said i think if i were to do a top five Giannis would probably be sixth I think I would probably put Nikola Jokic and Paul George, who fell off the bottom of my list, ahead of him.
0: Okay, that's fair. There's
1: a difference, I think, between sort of the, it's ridiculous that he was dismissed before the season even started. Or, you know, people were saying, well, if he's going to win MVP, he has to average like 40 and 20 this year. You know, he has to have a much better year than he did last year. You know, I think... That's a horseshit argument just on the surface. Like, it should be who had the best regular season and who contributed most to their team performing well during the regular season. And Giannis is, I think, still clearly one of the top people in that regard. But the Bucks don't have the best record in the conference right now. And it doesn't look like they're going to sort of run away with the best record in the league like they did last year. I think if anyone's going to run away with best record in the league, at it's, this the point, Lakers. it's probably going to be the Lakers. Yeah. So, you know, I think he has legitimately taken a step back this year as opposed to last year. I think you could argue that he's about in line with his first MVP season. And, you know, if you thought that he was good enough his first MVP season to give him the award then, you absolutely should put him on your ballot now. I just think that this year, the combination of the Bucks, you know, not clearly running away with the best record in the league and the fact that, you know— he, he admittedly has taken a little bit of a step back from last year, but he's still clearly one of the 10 best players in the league. He's still clearly an incredibly impactful player on both ends of the floor. And I think the narrative argument is problematic for a whole bunch of different reasons, but I just don't think he's been in the top five through the first quarter ish of the season.
0: Oh yeah. That's, that's totally fair. Um, I was debating putting Paul George in there myself because I have been, a long-noted Paul George fan. Um, I kind of turned in my Paul George fan club membership card after the playoffs he had last year. But that was more in the sense of, could he be the best player on a championship team? Because I long believed that. I am a huge Paul George fan. And the season he is finally having now that he is healthy and has working shoulders, um, he's been spectacular uh, so he he could be over Giannis too I'm not I'm not a I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna argue with you over that because I that I it was Durant and Jokic and Giannis and Paul George that I was debating flipping back and forth between because um like I said my whole thing was more about how I just hate that we disqualify players whenever They win back to back MVPs and then they fall short into the in the playoffs. And then it's like, well, we're just gonna wait and see what the Bucks do in the playoffs. And it's like, okay, so you're just basically exiling Giannis from any chance of winning any award. Like, that whole thing is just backwards to me. That's how it's not gonna happen this year, but that's how you end up with Carl Malone winning the MVP over Michael Jordan because people get tired of voting for the same guy. So I was just my rant was more so directed at this concept of voter fatigue. And well, if he if he won MVP before and fell short in the playoffs, uh, he'd have to average like fifty and ten because voters are just gonna be tired of voting for him. That's just that's that's backwards as hell to me. But that that's all that's all I had to say.
1: I will say people tend to apply similar arguments to Paul George, like, oh, he has to prove it in the playoffs, he has to prove it in the playoffs. Yep. As if, you know, he wasn't going toe to toe with LeBron as a twenty three year old. Thank people you. People just forget thank about y-
0: that entirely. Oh my God, thank you. Jesus Christ, dude. So I had this <laughs> I had this argument with my co host Chris on the Box Out Banner podcast, but like, okay. Paul George did not have a good playoffs in his last season in OKC. He also did not have working shoulders. And yes, the year before that they got bounced by uh they got they got bounced by the Jazz. Still, did we forget that he was the best player on two conference finalist teams going up against the best player in the league and holding his own? Like, how did we just forget that all of a sudden? And
1: yeah, last season is really the only playoffs that I like yeah. actively hold against Paul George yep. but like saying he's not a playoff performer just because he's had two bad playoffs in a row and completely ignoring like the first half of his career is questionable at best.
0: Yeah, and it it's 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 crazy. It's just it's just funny how people forget, you know. And Paul George has absolutely been one of the best players in the league for a long time and quite frankly he's been one of the best perimeter defenders I've ever seen um in the last 20 years i'm trying to think andre wadala kawhi leonard paul george tony allen um i'm sure i'm missing a few others in there uh chris paul of course chris paul is one of just bored just not even the fact that he's one of the best point guard defenders ever he's one of the best defenders period that dude was guarding kevin durant in the playoffs and doing well at six foot at six feet tall (laughs) like there's there, like there is a few upper echelon elite defenders that i think should belong up there historically that i've seen ov- over my lifetime i'm 29 and paul george is up there with with them um so all right so um we got our mvp list out of the way i had a rant i wanted to get off my chest so that felt good um thank you for indulging me uh but uh yeah this was this was fun man i'm glad i got you back on Uh, the podcast even though it's the third podcast that I have launched Um, but uh, if the 20 listeners who have been listening to me for the last five years they know uh, I have I have always had fun whenever you've come on the pod and uh, it's also good to be back at hashtag basketball and uh, we're definitely gonna have to do more of these man.
1: Yeah, for sure. And hopefully I will revive my NBA Deep Dives podcast for Hashtag Basketball, quick plug in there. And we can have you back there too. But yeah, it's been so much fun to chat basketball with you again, man. It's been too long.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And hopefully maybe the Kings will... Play better the next time we talk, so we could have a more lighthearted. We could start off the podcast more lighthearted, the lighthearted stuff first.
1: <laughs> or we can just have a forty-minute Tyrese Halliburton podcast. I'd be perfectly happy with that too.
0: Oh, that would probably be my most downloaded podcast because I think uh Kings fans would find that pretty easily. though Tyrese Halliburton is a uh, it's it's a fever out here. I could feel it even in a even in the confines of me working from home, and you know, trying to not go outside, I could still feel the Tyrese Halliburton fever going on here in SAC. But uh, Nick, it's been fun, man. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much for having me. Before we sign off, I wanted to give a few words on um, another unfortunate death in the NBA universe, the NBA family. Many fans also read him a bunch of times but Sekou Smith passed away um this podcast is coming out on a Wednesday so he passed away yesterday at the age of 48 after battling the coronavirus and I never crossed paths with him um in this media industry I have been in radio for five years now and no matter what field you're in, you're all kind of under the media umbrella. You run into people, and you, you know you you see people when you're at events that you're covering and stuff like that. And I never crossed paths with Seku Smith, but if you grew up watching and following the NBA, and I'm 29 years old, so I was right around the time I was right around that age growing up when NBA.com started, you know. Upping its writing, uh, and you know, you know the usual suspects Larry Coons, um, John Schumann, and Seku Smith. And I never met him, but I can only tell you from my vantage point being a black man that is in a field that also has the deck stack, stacked against you already, but is definitely stacked against minorities. Guys like Sekou Smith were people that I looked up to, and he happened to be a frequent read when I was growing up, especially in high school and in college. Like, I, that was, his articles were always front page on the website, and I'd always read them. And he was also on NBA TV. He did a bunch of roles for Turner Sports, and guys like him, Mike Wilbon, Stuart Scott. Rest in peace, Stuart Scott. Those guys, as somebody in college in 2012, when I was transferring out of community college and still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, I knew I liked sports, and people kept telling me that I had a voice for radio. So I tried to combine the two, and, you know, growing up, watch, and in a way, I drew inspiration from Mike Wilbon, Um, guys like that, I guess they shaped my decision to pursue radio, um, sports radio specifically because I loved sports. And so of course I was watching those guys and I'd always just admired how, no matter even if I disagree with them or not, I just always admired how they handled being a media personality, their sports acumen, the work ethic, but also when it comes to Sekou Smith, when you... And I'm not acting like I'm a veteran of the industry. Like I said, I've graduated college in 2014, started working in radio immediately after that fall semester. So I've, I've been a part of radio for five, six years now. And, you know, media in general. And, you know, you meet people, you hear about people and what they're like. And, you know, you have, obviously you have to sift through what's true and what's not. It's rare when you get universal praise. And unfortunately, we found out how universally praised he was in his in Sekou Smith's passing. But everybody has said that he is the nicest person you could ever meet. People brought up his smile all the time. Which, you know, is very is very apt because he was always smiling. He was always entertaining on TV, too. And it just seemed like he touched a lot of people. And it's rare to find people like that in the industry. And I definitely, in some ways, I was inspired by him. Like, I was inspired by a lot of black sports media personalities in some way, shape, or form. Quite frankly, it just sucks. I'm not going to sit here and act like I knew the guy, but it, his death ha- did impact me today. It was one of those you look at Twitter. Obviously, you know, January 26 has been a year since Kobe Bryant passed away, and now we've lost another legend. He's been in the business for over 20 years, and as somebody who hopes to even have a career that's even half that long, I just admired him from afar, and it definitely impacted me. And um, it just sucks that we keep losing good people, especially in the past year and change now. And it continues to be infuriating that people still don't take this pandemic seriously and that it's just the flu, even though that's a bunch of bullshit. And you just wonder sometimes when... The tough days will end, and this was definitely a tough day for people in sports media and media in general, friends and family of Sekou Smith, the NBA family, and it just sucks. So, um, rest in peace, Sekou Smith, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant, and... Quite frankly, January 26th can uh, piss off.